near the holiday season, as they say. Um, I'm just super, I love this time of year, man. I'm not even going to lie to you because, I mean, Halloween, Thanksgiving, leading into Christmas and the new year, I mean, it's just the best, right? I mean, absolutely. Have you already got your design for the pumpkin contest this year? Because I do. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, I'm very skeptical. I don't know, man. I yeah. mean, last year I did one just out of like uh, the the carving book that yeah. they give you. Yeah. Um, but this year, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be a little bit more ambitious or a little bit more um, safe with my design choice. So it's going to be very interesting. I'm telling And it's going to be interesting this time because we're going to be in separate places. So we're going to have to post separately or maybe Photoshop all of them together into a picture or something. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But it's going to be fun because, you know, I, it's always fun to have the competition. And hell yeah, I'm like you. You know me. I love the cold weather. Anytime... October starts and Halloween starts, it means we're rolling into the colder weather. And that's my game. That's my jam. (laughs) (laughs) I turned it off. I swear all of you people out there watching on YouTube, I turned it off. I watched a YouTube video. I went into my settings. It assured me it would be off. Apparently it was not. Apparently not. That's so freaking funny. But yeah, guys, we have so many new Halloween merchandise items right now in our store Four new merchandise items. Be sure to check those out. We are very proud of them. I think they uh, they represent the season very well. Yes. Um, so I'm super excited about those. So be sure to check those out at crazyantmedia.com and all the good things. And be sure to check out the next week's episode of EOP, mm-hmm. where it's going to be us talking about sober october and our process and what's been difficult for us and what's been a little bit easier um but you know it's a very interesting thing so we uh because i know we've been talking about it a lot on social media so we figured might as well just dedicate a whole show to it yeah um, absolutely. And I, I felt like it was a very good conversation i thought so too i think we had a really good time it was a really good talk and i think we opened up and shared a bit about us like we always do and you guys seem to love that so yeah i think it's gonna be a good one make sure to check it out for sure for sure episode 16 of everything's okay podcast coming out wednesday next wednesday but man Let's let's cut to the chase. Let's yes. get right into this show. Hello, everyone. So you want to start a podcast but have no idea where to start? Well, Crazy Ant Media is here to help you. We want to assist you finding your VFE. What's VFE, you ask? Well, that is your voice, your format, and your equipment. These are the three biggest essentials you need to start your podcast. All those hours watching nonstop YouTube videos or all those random website links, those are done. Just hop on a Zoom call with us and we'll talk about everything you need to know to create your own podcast and find your voice. Plus, we will send you home with a 12-page packet over everything we just discussed. It's very in-depth. It is definitely a must-need while trying to start your first podcast. Contact us at info at crazyantmedia.com today so that you can start finding your podcast voice for tomorrow. What's up, guys? Oh, my goodness. You guys know your host with the most, myself, JLo Fantastic, and the one only, Mouse. What's up? Back for episode 237. And, yes. man, oh, man, um, a lot of he said, she said this week with the WGA and studios. Um, even the part where the producer's part of the AMPTP was like, 
please take us out of this situation. We don't want to be associated. Um, so I thought that was pretty funny. But man, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. It's going to be a very informational show. Jam-packed, man. Jam-packed. Very jam-packed. We're going to make a lot of people happy and a lot of people sad. Um, but that's what we do. That's part of the game. It's Hollywood is a roller coaster of emotions, and that's what it's all about. But uh, hey, we do have one really great thing that's going to make everybody happy. Happy T-Swift! We're going to be Whoa. talking about T-Swift. How can we not, right? It's like the talk of the town. Fuck, it's the talk of the country, the talk of the world right now. So how can we not have her in there, right? Exactly, man. Exactly. And before diving into the rest of the show, of course, we have to say... Be sure to leave a rating on this podcast yes. and comment below because telling us what you actually think about the show helps this podcast get seen by more people who are trying to break into the entertainment industry and those who just love entertainment news. That's what we're here for, man. If it's going down in Hollywood, we are talking about it. Yes. And then, of course, like we teased a little bit earlier in the uh, show open, we have new merchandise out right now. It's our Halloween designs. Uh, so be sure to check those out. We're super proud of them. I think they represent us and the company very well. Um, if you look closely, you will see Bonk in each one of these images. Uh, it's very fun. It's like it's kind of like a game, you know, with uh, with Pixar and Disney. There's a mouse somewhere in Pixar movies every time. So it's one of those things where, you know, find where the bonk is and you will be a little crazy yes <laughs> but man it's gonna be crazy uh like we said this this show is jam-packed and we're gonna dive right in with the wga because that's been the talk of the town right trying to figure out this situation so we can all get back to work um and it's absolutely wild. Well, we know that the Writers Guild of America, they have voted officially overwhelmingly to ratify this new contract, uh, formally ending one of the longest labor disputes in Hollywood history. The membership voted 99% in favor of the ratification, with 8,435 votes saying yes and only 90 members saying no. Now, this was a 148-day strike, ranking one of the longest strikes in Guild history, matching the duration of the 1960 film strike. Mm. Now, the TV strike that year went for an additional week, ending after 156 days. Now, and the uh, 1988 film and television strike lasted about 154 days. The WGA ended its strike on September 27th after the boards of the WGA West and East voted to submit a tentative agreement to the membership for ratification, as you know if you listen to the show regularly. The voting period opened on October 2nd and closed 1 p.m. Pacific time on Monday. Now, ratification is necessary. Uh, it's a necessary step to get the industry back up and running. But production cannot resume until the AMPTP reaches a agreement with the other strike of Hollywood, which is the SAG after strike, whose 160,000 members have been on strike since July 14th. Negotiations with Actors Union uh, resumed last week, and they were continuing this week as well. The two sides remain at odds, though. Um, increases in minimum rates and opposed revenue share in streaming 
and other items. We're going to dive deep into it. Oh, yeah. So that's the good news. One strike ratified over. Writers can talk about their stuff. They're back in their writer's rooms. They're knocking out some scripts. Yay! Now the bad news. On Wednesday night, and I'm talking barely Wednesday night, y'all. If you were on the East Coast, it was Thursday fucking morning, okay? But on Wednesday night, the AMPTP announced that talks with SAG-AFTRA had been suspended. Yes, you heard me right. After all that optimism for the past couple weeks that we've been talking about on the show have been suspended, saying the gap between the two sides is just too great and that conversations are no longer moving in a productive direction. Now, SAG-AFTRA has been on strike, as we said, since July, joining the Writers Guild of America on the picket line. But whereas the writer's strike ended on September 27th, as Logan just told you, the AMPTP has yet to strike a deal with the actors. Though things were hopeful for the past couple of weeks... They just, they fell apart. SAG after Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland said that the studios rejected the union's request for a 2% share of streaming revenue. So on Wednesday, the actors proposed they instead be paid a set rate per subscriber of all the major streaming platforms. But the two parties disagreed on how much that would actually cost the studios, with SAG-AFTRA estimating $500 million per year and the studios countering that it could be as much as $800 million a year. SAG-AFTRA wants its members to be compensated fairly for all programs that appear on streaming, including theatrical films and, and this is the biggie, we talked about this last week, pre-existing shows licensed from broadcast and cable. The studios in the union remain at odds over several other items as well, including artificial intelligence and increases in minimums to keep pace with inflation. Now, SAG-AFTRA is seeking an 11% increase in minimum rates. The studios is offering the same deal it gave the WGA and the Directors Guild, 5%, fouled by a 4% and a 3.5% each three years when they renew the contracts. Now, the studios, as always, because they're little shit babies, they published its most recent proposal on Wednesday night in hopes that the rank-and-file members would read it and see it as a reasonable basis for further negotiation. The studios made a similar move, like I said, when talks stalled with the WGA in mid-August, which prompted backlash from the members of the WGA, who saw it as an attempt to circumvent leadership. SAG is saying the same thing. They thought it was a shitty move to put it out there. It didn't work. It backfired for this one, just like it backfired for the writers. Um, yeah, this is this is just, it's heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. It was looking so good. It looked like it was rocking and rolling. And, mm, I mean, what are you going to say? Like they're there for two weeks. They were meeting every other day. So, yeah. I mean, you thought we were getting somewhere and then boom, just kidding. Fuck you. Yep. Um, but the Hollywood unions issued a statement today calling on the major studios to resume bargaining with SAG-AFTRA. Two days after talks with actors union broke down. As we just mentioned, the AMPTP has offered SAG-AFTRA a deal that would be uh, patterned in key respects on agreements reached with the Directors Guild of America and the Writers Guild of America. The guilds are wary of being pitted against each other, though. Now, in a statement, the unions, which include WGA, DGA, and the IATSE, 
argued that the AMPTP should realize that in dealing with SAG-AFTRA and said, quote, our members work side by side for the same handful employers and our unions and guilds collectively stand more united than ever, which is true. You saw everybody on each other's picket lines. Oh, yeah. Each day, a fair contract addressing actors' unique priorities is delayed as yet another day of working professionals across our industry suffer unnecessarily just no work. Nah, and that's what it is. It's unnecessary. Exactly. And at this point, it should be clear to the studios and the AMPTP that more is needed than proposals, which merely replicate the terms negotiated with other unions. We collectively demand that the AMPTP resumes negotiations in good faith immediately, make meaningful moves at negotiating tables with SAG-AFTRA to address performers specific needs and make a fair deal they deserve and you guys know we wholeheartedly agree with this i feel like you know they try to cut corners a lot of times to where they feel like that's not that big of a deal why do they even want this that type of situation but it's obviously something that is hurting the actors and SAG-AFTRA and all these other unions in the long run that's why everybody else was going on strike so just one of those things man we have to get back to the negotiating table i'm hoping at some point next week but we'll see sadly i i don't think so though i saw today that insiders with some some pretty solid knowledge said they expect it to be weeks or months before they go back to the table what the which hell? would be just awful but i do like that all the other unions in in solidarity came out and said look the actors are different you can't give them a contract that's the same as the one you just gave us, the writers. You can't give them a contract that's the same as you gave the directors. We're all different. And you need to go to the table and listen to what they need and get a deal done with their specific needs. I love that. I, I love that they're behind them and standing with them and saying, we're not all the same. And you you can't treat us all the same. So we'll see. We'll see. But let's jump over to some good news. Are you ready for it? Yeah, you are. Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour is opening this weekend. It's made $2.8 million in its Thursday previews from 2,700 theaters. Now, showings began last night at 6 p.m. The film was originally slated to open today, Friday, as we're recording this. But in a surprise announcement just hours before her L.A. premiere on Wednesday, Swift told her legions of fans that it would be launched slightly earlier on Thursday night instead. Now, the movie, which filmed Swift during her massively popular Eras concert tour, is expected to earn between $100 and $125 million in its opening weekend. I think it's going to be way higher than that, I'm just saying. The added Thursday showtimes and a huge buzz from the premiere could push that debut even higher, which I agree with. Now, the movie has already made $100 million in advance ticket sales, which is why I say it's going to make more than what they're saying. Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour, is opening on 3,850 theaters in North America and a further 4,150 venues in more than 90 countries. Now, the international launch could bring in... 30 to 50 million, putting the worldwide debut at an upwards of 150 to 175 million dollars. This film is unusual, though, get this, because it's not being distributed by a major studio. No, seriously, it's not. Swift took meetings with the Hollywood companies, but ultimately decided to release the movie with the help of AMC, the world's largest theater chain. Go figure. 
Now, it is not exclusively only in AMC theaters. It is playing in other theaters as well, though, just in case you were wondering. In another historic move, and this is exciting, it will probably be the first movie ever to encourage people to actually take out their cell phones during the uh, film. Swift told her fans to treat the movie like they were at the concert and take photos and videos and dance while they watch it, have a great time, and party hardy. Theater owners have played along and are actually pushing sales of exclusive merch Merchandise to draw Swifties into the Cineplexes, and they're all in on the phones being out and filming and, and doing the kind of stuff. That is crazy. That it, it, it's it's gonna it's three and a half hours long because it's a it's the full on concert. Um, and get this, just a, a little side note here. I just read right before we started recording that some people did some numbing number crunching from the Wall Street Journal. Taylor Swift is going to bank four point one billion dollars off of the heiress tour between the ticket sales and the movie 4.1 billion dollars she's like a, a billionaire now and get this she has pumped in just la alone from the three shows at sofi stadium she pumped in 380 plus million dollars into the community uh, over those three days and she's given $50 million out in bonuses to her people, to her drivers. Like, I mean, the hotels are, are like, they're, they're, she's basically bringing in at least a quarter of a million dollars to every city that she's performed in. Like, that's insane. She's like single-handedly raised the economy just by T-Swift. I mean, and fuck, don't you, let's not even talk about the NFL that's selling jerseys out the fucking ass now with, with Swifty on the back. It isn't Kelsey. They're fucking selling Kansas City jerseys with Swifty on the back. It's fucking insane, bro. But people love her, man. People love her. It's true, man. It's true. And yeah, it's very interesting. I'm really excited for Sunday and Monday to see what those numbers are, to see uh, how many people actually went, you know? Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting. I I love the publicity. I think it's a good thing for the entertainment industry in general and the economy, obviously, with those numbers that you just uh, reported. I think, you know, it's doing really well. Without so exciting. And catch it this um, weekend, guys, because she's making it like a concert event. It's only playing on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It will not play through the week. So you can only catch it on the weekend as if you were going to the big concert. So yeah. <laughs> make sure you go see it this weekend. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Disney, we're heading over there right now. Now, an activist investor, Nelson Peltz, has or amassed a $2.5 billion stake in the Walt Disney Company and is preparing for a second run at pressuring the company to grant him a with border seats. Uh, we've talked about this guy before in the past. But this time, the Wall Street Journal reported Sunday that Peltz uh, try and fund management is responding to the steady slide of Disney shares, which are down 16% for the year to date. Now, in January, uh, trying un unleashed a target campaign to criticize Disney's corporate management and recent underperformance of the stock. Now, Peltz pushed to have himself added to the Disney board. But by February 9th, Trine had reached a dente uh, with Disney, which at the same time was readjusting to the return of Bob Iger as CEO back in uh, November of 22. 
which followed the rocky nearly three-year tenure of Bob Chappick, which you guys know we've reported on every single week when he got <laughs> appointed. Um, now, Peltz withdrew his bid for the board seat after Disney unveiled a board restructuring of operations and made other commitments to streamline company operations. Now, Iger in January floated the trial balloon of possibly selling ABC and other linear television assets. And it's no secret that the company has been considering partnership options for ESPN. Pelt's decision to revive his campaign comes after he was steadily increased uh, his stake in Disney in recent months. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal... Disney, like other media giants, has struggled with an accelerated transition from linear to streaming platforms that have ended how studios make money for content. Um, the industry also endured a rough summer of dual strikes, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, as you all know. And in January, Trend took aim in its investor materials at Disney's operational and strategic thinking, as well as over-the-top compensation practices and not enough cost discipline around the new streaming businesses. Peltz also faulted Disney for its failed succession process and for overpaying, quote-unquote, for 20th 20th century fox back in 2019 i feel like this guy is just gonna create all the negative press for disney that he can um he is just looking for a way to basically do a hostile takeover let's yeah, be honest about he's it. a little bitch boy all he he's gonna buy his board seats and he's not gonna stop until he gets them and it's fucking ridiculous it, it's like nobody gives a shit how much money you have nobody gives a shit how much stock you buy in the company right you're not getting the board seats they don't want you on the board bro so you're basically like what you just said logan he's gonna have to buy a big enough stake to where he can literally force a corporate takeover because it's the only way he's gonna get on the board it's the only mm -hmm. way it's gonna happen because they're gonna continue to vote against him so just go the fuck away bro like i mean you're damaging the company more than trying to help it, right? By what you're doing, you're actually damaging it. Just get the fuck out of the way and let Iger do what he's doing. You know, everybody's struggling. Like, this guy, I just feel like, you know, he... Yeah, because he's saying all the stuff that literally Iger has said has been the problem. He's like, no shit, you're putting all of this out here. But Iger's like, I know my succession plan was bad. That's why I'm trying to take this second go around at it i know all of these things are kind of in the shitter like we know streaming is that balloon that's gonna pop at some point and yeah. people keep funneling money into it and it's just one of those things where he's literally just repeating what disney is saying yeah so it's yeah it's ridiculous and unlike with people like when you know trying to get better wages and and you know living wages and stuff we all know with companies you can't solve problems by throwing money at it. You, that's, it never works. So you can't just keep buying up stock and trying to throw money at what you say are the problems. That is not the solution. So just, yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. This guy is pissing me off. That's all I'm saying. You know what's not pissing me off? And it's just an example of Disney is just fine, bro. Back the fuck off. 
They're celebrating their 100th year. You don't stay around for 100 fucking years unless you're doing something right. And part of their 100-year anniversary celebration, hi-ho, a 4K restoration of the original 1937 animation classic Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is set to land on Disney Plus later this month. I think that's freaking awesome. The 4K version of the film will also be available on Disney Plus worldwide on October 16th, timed for the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. Now, Disney previously announced a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray edition of Snow White would be available starting October 10th. Disney shared before and after images comparing the original print to the 4K restoration on film. According to the company, the restored version is the result of combined efforts of the Walt Disney Studios restoration and preservation team working closely with key artists from Walt Disney's animation studios. Now, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is an historic achievement. If you didn't know it, it's the first full-length cell animated feature in the history of motion pictures. That's right, the very first time it had ever been done. If you haven't watched the documentary, Walt Disney actually designed a camera specifically to make this film happen. I mean, he, he created a camera that never existed just for this film, which is freaking awesome. It's uh, The film was recognized by the Academy of the Motion Pictures Arts of Sciences with a special honorary Oscar. One large Oscar accompanied by seven smaller ones. Get it? Because of the dwarfs. That was pretty good. Presented to Walt Disney by Shirley Temple herself. Now, the film is the highest ranked animated feature on the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Movies list and was inducted into the National Film Registry in 1989, the registry's inaugural year. Yeah, Snow White, I mean, there would be no animated films if Snow White fails, period. So it is a hugely significant film. It is a hugely significant film and piece of cinematic history, and I can't wait. I, you know, I'm all in on watching the restored version of it, and kudos, man. I freaking love it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just feel like, you know, it's another homage to what came before in this franchise or in this company, uh, which I think is very cool because you have to know where you come from to know where you're going. Um, so that's always very exciting. That's right. So a place that they're going is hopefully a good thing for Marvel and Disney. And that's Loki. I mean, Loki season two has been very popular so far. A lot of so people far. are talking about it and it opened to a solid viewership numbers. Uh, the first few days of availability, I mean, Everybody was talking about it on Twitter. Now, but according to Disney, the second season launch of Marvel Studios series pulled in about uh, 10.9 million views in its first three days of availability, with the premiere debuting on October 5th, as I'm sure everyone knows. For sure. A view is defined as a total stream time divided by the runtime. Now, streamers have slowly begun to roll out more in-depth viewership numbers uh, for their titles. Recently, Disney announced that the film Elemental pulled in um, about 26.4 million views in its first five days on Disney+, Plus, while the live-action uh, Little Mermaid pulled in 16 million views in that same time frame. Meanwhile, the live-action Star Wars series Ahsoka is said to have generated about 14 million views in five days when it debuted back in August. So, I mean, they're doing pretty solid numbers. I mean, you have so many big franchises. It only makes sense. Well, and, and Loki, 
So it's the first one to get a season two. And that's significantly important because this next story, that plays heavily into it. Now, I personally think this next story is good news. I'm thrilled because I thought that they were going to make a disaster out of this from everything that I was hearing. So I'm thrilled. Daredevil Born Again is undergoing major creative overhauls. The Disney Plus series from Marvel Studios has recently parted way with its head writers, Chris Ord and Matt Corman, and is currently seeking new writers to revamp the show. Now, Orden Corman will still be credited as executive producers, and with less than half of the series' 18-episode order shot prior to the beginning of the strike, Marvel has also released the directors for the remaining episodes of the season. Now, some elements of the already shot material will be used going forward, but Marvel is looking to take the show in a whole new creative direction. Daredevil is still unable to return, though, to full-scale production because of the actors remaining on strike. Now, if you didn't know, Charlie Cox will return as Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, in the new series, along with Vincent D'Onofrio as uh, Kingpin. Now, the two previously starred in the Marvel Netflix Daredevil series that ran from 2015 to 2018. Now, here's what's going down. Somebody, I guess Feige... They have decided that moving forward, they are now going to develop these shows as long-term shows with seasons, not just one-shot events. They weren't happy with Secret Invasion. They weren't happy. So they don't like these things. So now it's going to be set for long-term. Um, I like because here's what we were hearing about what Daredevil was going to be. One, it was going to be more like a courtroom drama. We weren't even going to see that much of him in costume. Apparently the reason, remember how we were telling you that Karen and Foggy weren't going to be there? That Ensign and uh, Deborah Ann Wall weren't coming back with the cast? Well, apparently because the storyline, they were killed. Daredevil fails to save them, so he hangs up the suit and focuses on just being a lawyer which is why we weren't going to see him in the suit and we were only going to see him in the courtroom taking on cases because he walked away from being Daredevil because he failed to save them. And the other underlying plot line that they were going to go with is that he was going after corrupt police that were wearing the Punisher logo and trying to justify their corruptness by because they're like the Punisher type thing. And so that's what... So those were the two storylines that they were going to kind of go with. Nobody fucking wanted that. Nobody wanted to not see Daredevil. Nobody wanted it to be a courtroom drama. We saw how well that went over with She-Hulk. And we saw a lot of She-Hulk as She-Hulk. But that people didn't really like the courtroom aspect of it. So um, I think this is a good move. I think the right move with this show is to just make the next season of the Netflix series. Just pick it up and carry on with that. Like, that's what people want. And in my opinion, and, and, and uh, you know, I love to hear what you think, but in my opinion, that is the single best straight up live action adaptation of a comic book that I have ever seen. Other than it might even be better than my 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 granddaddy of them all, Superman the movie, because they didn't, in my opinion, get Lex right in that movie. I'm not a fan of Lex. They got everything right in Daredevil. It, it's spot on. The tone of it, the grit of it, the 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 casting of the characters, brilliant. So my thing is, if it ain't broke, 
Don't fucking fix it. Just say, boom, it's canon. We're just going to continue with season four. We're going to pick right up where we left off, and we're just going to fucking go. That, that, if you want to do that, that's what the fans fucking want. So just give it to them. And then moving forward, do that with all your other shows. Go with seasons. Plan out long arcs. That's I think that's the right way to do it anyway. So I don't know. I think this is good news. It's saying finally that somebody's going, Feige or whoever is stepping back going, wait a minute. We were just pushing out content and not doing it right. We fucked up. Let's slow down, get this back in check, take our time and do it right. So I'm, I'm all in. Does it mean we have to wait a little bit longer to see it? Yeah, unfortunately, but I'm okay with that as long as we get what we want, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there's nothing else that really lives up to that type of caliber, you know? I mean, I really enjoyed the the Punisher show, but I mean, that's just basically a spinoff of the Daredevil show. Yeah, without um, doubt. So, I mean, yeah, I think they're doing the right thing and trying to make it the best possible product and that's what you have to do you know it's not it's not horrible to try things but you see that the things you're trying are not work so let let's go back to the bread and butter let's go back to the bread and butter and we saw Um, matt we saw matt in the courtroom a little bit in the netflix series i mean that was fine we did get to see him lawyering a little bit right like so you know we don't need law and order in hell's kitchen we just need daredevil (laughs) we have enough fucking law and orders we don't need that we need daredevil that's all i'm saying exactly exactly well the tiana animated series is in the work at disney plus and it has enlisted joyce sherry as the show's lead writer and director now this is a musical project uh was originally announced back in 2020 during the disney investor day and the official um description for tiana states that it the show will follow the title character as she sets off for a grand new adventure as a newly crowned princess of Maldonina. Um, But calling, uh, but a calling to her new Orleans past isn't far behind. The series has previously been described as a follow-up to uh, uh, 2009's animated film, the princess and the frog, which introduced the character of Tiana, which is very exciting because I mean, that one was a hit. Oh, Anika yeah. Anoni Rose will once again provide the voice of Tiana. Walt Disney Animation Studios will produce Tiana as the studio previously made The Princess and the Frog, so it only makes sense. Nathan Curtis will produce this bad boy with uh, Jennifer Lee and Stella Maggie um, executive producing. Now, Maggie was previously attached as the writer and director of the series, but remains on board as an executive producer. The series was originally expected to debut in uh, 2023, but is now said to be launching in 2024. Sherry's most recent television writing credit was on Netflix's horror miniseries Midnight Mass by Mm. Mike uh, Flanagan. Uh, She also has written and directed short films like Beauty, Forever, Down, Down Baby, and Family Romance. She also won uh, the 2020 Slam Dance Screenplay Competition for her feature Sweet 16 and was selected for 2021 Sundance Institute Screenwriters Intensive. So she knows her shit. She knows what she's doing, and uh, I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good. I know a lot of people like Princess and the Frog and then spin it off into this, so I think that'll be popular for the younger audience because, like I talked about last week, 
Disney is kind of more focused on this more adult Star Wars and Marvel stuff. But we need to get the kids back in the theaters. We need to get the kids back on Disney Plus. So kudos to them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's one of my favorite movies. I love The Princess and the Frog. I thought it was fantastic. And the New Orleans set. So, you know, I really enjoyed it. So I'm excited about that one. This next one I'm not excited about. You guys know I love Hugh Jackman. He's my man. He's one of my favorite all times. But this was one of his worst movies ever. So I don't see the point of trying to turn it into anything else. Baz Luhrmann apparently is set to world premiere his upcoming miniseries, Fairway Downs, on the closing night of the upcoming South by Southwest Sydney Screen Festival, closing the loop on a filmmaking journey that began nearly 20 years ago. Now, Fairway Downs is the expanded TV version of the director's 2008 theatrical release, Australia. You remember that piece of shit? That epic romance starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman that flopped completely at the domestic box office with a gross of less than 50 million bucks, guys. Now, Australia had a near three-hour runtime of 165 minutes. Now, while the expanded Fairway Down is being released as a six-part series... All six chapters of the miniseries will premiere together November 26th on Hulu in the United States, Star Plus in Latin America, and on Disney Plus in all other territories. I I don't see the point of this. Don't go back and try to fix it. It didn't work. Even Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman regret making it. They said they don't understand it. I saw Nicole Kidman. She did a quote. She said, I recently, when I was watching it, turned to my husband, Keith Urban, and said, am I even good in this? Like, it's that fucking bad. (laughs) When your actors are saying they don't even think they were good in it, we don't need to go back to it. That's all I'm saying. We don't don't need to go back to it. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense. Baz is just trying to figure out what to do after Elvis. That's all that is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Classic 80s legal drama, L.A. Law, is coming to Hulu with an upgrade. All eight episodes are eight seasons of the show, rather, uh, comprising of 172 episodes total, have been newly remastered by Disney in HD with a 16-9 aspect ratio from the original film source for streaming on Hulu. Nice. Now, LA Law will be available on Hulu starting November 3rd. And according to Hulu... All original commercial licensed music was kept intact and also upgraded. So that's very exciting. Yeah. Hulu, which is majority owned by Disney, does not have exclusive streaming rights to L.A. Law, though. The eight seasons of the show are also currently available on Amazon Prime Video. L.A. Law originally aired from 1986 to 1994 on NBC. So it's very interesting how this is not a Peacock story, NBC Universal story. But, you know, Disney coming in and swooping up all the old stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is a phenomenal show. A great cast. Susan Day and Blair Underwood and Corbin Burnson, Jimmy Smits. So many amazing people on that show that I pe- think people forgot that that's where they launched. They were launched from. So uh, I'm pumped. I loved it when it was on. I'm going to watch it again for sure. And by the way, I think on Prime you have to pay for each episode or for each season so if you're a subscriber to disney plus 
way better way to watch it. Just saying, that's all. Uh, let's jump over to Fox real quick. This one's an interesting one. I'm kind of happy about it. I mean, this is a cute show. MasterChef Junior has been renewed for a ninth season, Fox announced this week. This time with new judge Tilly Ramsey joining her father, Gordon Ramsey. The award-winning chef will continue to serve as host and executive producer. Now, based on the format created by Frank Rodham, each season of the unscripted cooking competition follows a crop of young home cooks between the ages of 8 and 13 as they face off in a variety of challenges to win the title of America's next MasterChef Junior, taking home a trophy and a hundred grand in prize money. Chef Aaron Sanchez and author and wellness advocate Daphne Oz also will return as judges. I like this one because it's really cute to see Gordon be nice. He's not screaming at the kids. He can't scream at an eight-year-old the way he screams at Kitchen Nightmare and shit, you know? So it's it's just nice to see his soft side every now and then, uh, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, he is a very popular TV personality and chef. So it is uh, it's definitely one of those things where people are like, oh, he's with his daughter. That'll be cute. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that that's fun. That's fun. Well, we're hopping over to the bunny Warner Brothers Discovery. We are now officially in the knowledge or in the know that none of the stars from Zack Snyder's 2016's Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice and 2017's Justice League, including Ben Affleck, Henry Cavill, Gal Gadot, and Ezra Miller. Oh, and also that other guy, Momoa will reprise their roles in a new DC universe in character. Now Momoa may return just not as Aquaman though. Sources say that the actor has engaged in talks to play Lobo either in uh, 2025's reboot of Superman Legacy, written and directed by Gunn, of course, or in a standalone film. In a confusing twist, Viola Davis, who played Amanda Waller in both uh, the recent Suicide Squad movies, will remain as a character in the Gud Safran DC Universe in the next year's uh, Max series, Waller and possibly in the new Superman temple. Another outliner is uh, Gunn's Max series Peacemaker. Now, that will be back for a second season, and John Cena will remain the lead. So the more and more stories that come out about this, I'm like, okay, I'm just not going to trust anything until it happens. Okay, I like, I mean, they're so wishy-washy and so back and forth about who or who isn't going to be in their universe. So... I'm going to wait until the screen or the film hits the big screen and then I'll know if these characters are back or not. Yeah, I just don't understand how you're going to keep Amanda Waller and Peacemaker and a couple of the people from Peacemaker because they existed in the in the Snyderverse. And so but you're eliminating all of the Snyderverse people, then how does that even make sense? I, I just I don't know. But I think you might be in trouble, my friend, with wanting to wait and see how it's all going to go because there's been some confusion on the series front about who is actually in control of the DC universe and moving forward. Now, unlike the Marvel-Disney relationship in which Marvel controls all of the creative process and Disney Plus merely releases the content, Max is creatively involved in the DC slate. Gunn and Safran don't enjoy the same autonomy as Marvel's Kevin Feige. And this is gonna this is where it's gonna get really, really, really interesting. A Max source says the collaboration between the DC team and Max executives, Sarah Aubrey and Casey Bloyles, so far has been seamless, including some of the upcoming series with The Penguin, which was forced to shut down, of course, due to the strikes, uh, but will be resuming uh, shortly. 
But here's where it gets tricky. Inside sources are now saying that they're convinced that another company and who they're hearing, they're saying most likely will be universal, will buy Warner Brothers within the next two years, making the recent DC subplots and upheavals even more confusing because what if the new ownership doesn't like Gunn and Saffron's ideas and they could right out of there what does that mean for superman legacy what does it mean for the castings that we know of will we keep people will we not because if if that happens if universal does because it's long been rumored that the dickheads trying to sell off warner brothers right so thankfully another studio would buy it at least i'm happy about that but what if they don't like gun and saffron We're going to have to go through a whole upheaval again to see what's going to happen with DC. I just... mm, mm, mm. That's so stressful. Like, I mean, because as a fan who pays attention to the entertainment industry and who's in the entertainment industry, it makes me not even want to give any attention to the DC universe. When we actually started to get excited about James Gunn's vision. Yeah. So, I mean, but with all of this stuff happening that is out of their control yeah it makes me not even want to pay attention to it because they're not they're not consistent um and i mean you know that's out of saffron and guns hands of course but right like just the content in general um it it really sucks because i feel like dc's slate since the snyderverse has been like ruined like it it, 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 they really haven't even given these films a chance to be successful or this creative vision a chance to be successful so it really sucks man um but warner brothers universal or universal warner brothers kind of sounds cool it does i mean you know i i i wouldn't mind that company name yeah no yeah I'm I'm totally with you. I, as long as they save Warner Brothers, keep it intact. You know, let, you have I, I'm to. Totally, you have to. But I am a little worried about DC though, because you know, Universal not so great with superheroes. I mean, they've owned the rights no, to the not. Hulk forever, and look at that disaster. I'm just saying the 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 heroes that they did own the rights to, fucking sucked. I mean, you know, so we haven't seen a whole lot. That doesn't give me much confidence, bro. It just doesn't. But we'll see. I, me personally, I would I would stick with Gunn long enough to launch the new Superman because he is a wholehearted from birth up Superman fan. I think he's going to get that shit right. Build it around that and Pattison's Batman and move forward from there. You've got two solid starts and just go. Am I right? Up oh, there's yay confetti. Woo! They agree with me. Uh, just that's what I think. But what do I know? I'm not going to keep you now from your favorite story of the show. I'm sure. Uh, I hate it. I hate it so much. I, I mean, I I'm sure people saw me post about it on Instagram, or at least you follow my stories. Uh, Warner Brothers has released another look at Timothy Chalamet's uh. as Willy Wonka in the new Wonka trailer. The second trailer gives a further glimpse into the origin story of the iconic chocolate maker, with Chalamet serving as another comedic rendition of the beloved character. Willy Wonka is a character created by uh, Roald Dahl in his 1964 children's novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The story follows Charlie Bucket, a young boy who ends up winning a golden ticket uh, to tour Wonka's iconic chocolate factory. Now, of course, Gene Wilder first stepped into that role of Willy Wonka in 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 
while Johnny Depp led Tim Burton's 2005 adaptation, Wonka, uh, I just, are Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and now this one, Wonka, will make its theatrical debut on December 15th, and I'm just going to say it right here, right now, I think it's going to be a flop. I bet it doesn't make more than, I'll say $40 million right now. I don't think it'll make more than $40 million. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I'm not excited about it. It looks like, honestly, it's a cheap knockoff of the Johnny Depp version. Even the costuming and everything. Um, I just They should have just... Gene Wilder is Willy Wonka. It should just stay that way. It's a classic. It's beautiful. It's the, it, it just They should have never tried to retouch this thing. They just shouldn't mm-hmm. have. It's a fucking disaster. Um, this next one, though, I am excited about because this sounds really fucking cool. Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, as you guys know, their combined star power helped power Barbie to one and a half billion dollars in worldwide ticket sales, an all-time high gross for Warner Brothers, of course. So the studio is clearly hoping to duplicate that success with the upcoming Ocean's Eleven Yes, I said Ocean's Eleven prequel movie, which is set to reunite Robbie and Gosling on the big screen. Now, this will be the first Ocean's project since the Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett's Ocean 8 in 2018. Now, not much is known about the prequel other than the involvement of Robbie Gosling and director Jay Roach and writer Carrie Solomon. Plot details for the prequel are being kept under wraps, as always, but the story is expected to take place in 1960s Europe far removed from Las Vegas, where the Rat Pack starring the original 1960 film and the George Clooney-fronted trilogy, of course, in the 2000s were based. Ocean's 8 set its action in New York City. Um, look, if you're telling me a period piece set in the 1960s about, you know, the, the like, thieves and all that, and it's Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, I'm fucking all in. I mean, are they George Clooney's parents? Like, I don't, I don't, you know... I, I don't know, right? It would be interesting to see what the plot line is going to be. But the two of them do have chemistry. And they, they, the, that franchise has steam. People love the franchise. So this seems like a no-brainer to me. This is going to be a big hit. Yeah, I think so too. And honestly, I liked um, Sandra Bullock's Ocean movie. I did I wish too. they would come back to it um, and continue moving forward with that. Because we really don't know if danny is dead or not right like that's right at the end she was at his grave but they also implied that he might not be dead so it's one of those things but yeah i i thought like it was a good you know rendition of this franchise but yeah i'm i'm really excited for this i think that's going to be a lot of fun um now speaking on stage at contenders london event over the weekend ferrari director uh michael mann now, he confirmed that Heat 2 is set to be his next movie. Asked whether the novel adaptation would be his next screen epic, the legendary filmmaker said, quote, Yes, Meg Gardner and myself wrote the novel Heat 2, which came out right when we were shooting Ferrari. And it did pretty well. I plan to shoot that next. It was revealed earlier this year, pre-strikes, that man's Ferrari led Adam driver was in talks to play a young Neil McCauley, uh, the character who played, um, or who was played by Robert De Niro in the first movie. Now in heat two, uh, which also had a Warner brothers, or uh, he was also in talks with Warner brothers to join, uh, Heat two serves as both a prequel and sequel to the first film. 
The story follows Macaulay Chris Shaherlis, uh, originally played by Val Kilmer, and Vincent Hanna, uh, who is originally played by Al Pacino. In the years leading up to the L.A. set crime saga and chronicles what happened to surviving characters in the years after. The storyline takes readers back to Chicago in 1988 when Macaulay, Shahir and their Highline crew are taking scores on the West Coast, the U.S.-Mexico border, and in Chicago. At the same time, Hannah is cutting his teeth as a rising star in the Chicago Police Department, chasing an ultraviolent gang of home invaders. The original 1995 movie, also made with Warner Brothers, was a solid hit that has since become revered as a crime classic with a global following. Um, this one I just recently put on my uh, to-watch list. I've never seen this one, but it looks amazing. Oh my gosh, dude. It's De Niro and Pacino in the same film. Enough right. said. I mean, it's fucking brilliant. Long been rumored that there was going to be a second one, and it's been like down the line, down the line, down the line. So I'm thrilled that they're coming back to this bad boy and doing it. This is going to be – I'm so excited for it. I can't wait for you to watch the first one so that we we could talk about it and then kind of – oh, dude, I'm so pumped about it. So pumped about it. All right. Let's jump on over to the eye where I'm also really pumped about this one. Although it's been nearly 20 years since the series finale of Frasier. I can't believe it's been that long. Holy shit. Back in 2004, the witty and verbose psychiatrist Frasier Crane is back with a new comedy series that's simply titled Frasier. Now, the revival is about the now-retired Frazier Crane returning to Boston from Chicago to reconnect with his estranged son, Freddie, after spending years apart. Now, in the first two episodes that dropped on Paramount Plus on October 12th and aired in a one-hour block on CBS the next day, uh, Frazier revival has been in the works, as you guys know, since it was officially announced way back in 2021. While it appears to have seen mostly positive reviews from the critics so far. Now get this, if you want to rewatch the entire original series before you jump on the revival, you're in luck because all 11 seasons of the original Frasier are available on Paramount Plus also. Um, I absolutely loved the first two episodes. It was a solid closure to Frasier and a nice start to the revival of. Um, as you guys know, John Mahoney, who played his dad, passed away in real life. They do a touching tribute. The whole first episode is about Freddie dealing with the loss of his grandpa. And 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 it was so well done. They give a little shout-out jab to Cheers about a former bar he used to spend way too much time in the last time he was in Boston. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, they hint at numerous times that B.B. Newworth's Lilith will be making an appearance. She has to. They keep bringing up Freddie's mom, Freddie's mom, Freddie's mom. Lilith has to make an appearance. I, I'm telling you, I feel that coming. But if you were a fan of the original, you know, toss salad and green eggs, you're going to love this one. It, 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 or scrambled eggs. Why did I say green eggs? Like, there's where I'm going. Um, <laughs> I just, I fucking loved it. I, it's everything that was great about Frasier. It's all back, and and the the new castmates are are solid. Um, Daphne and Niall's son, he's in it also. So he moved with. Uh, he's going to Harvard, so he's kind of there with Kelsey anyway, um, or Fraser anyway. So you got him, 
and then the son. So, of course, they're cousins, you know, and then, uh, yeah, it's just, it's brilliant. I can't say enough about this. I'm sorry. I'm just going to stop now, but like watch it. You'll, you'll love it. You'll love it. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely on my watch list to see how it is. Cause I never watched it religiously, but Frazier was one of those where I like, I felt like I could pick it up wherever the storyline was. I mean that it, each episode was so an individual story as its own. So it's definitely a freaking huge classic and I am excited to watch the, the revival. Fantastic. Um, Nathan Fielder, Emma Stone, and Benny Safdie star in the new trailer of Showtime's bizarre home-flipping comedy series, The Curse. Now, Fielder and Stone play a newly married couple, Asher and Whitney, who are hosts of a house-flipping TV show and also trying to conceive their first child. Their lives and careers are turned upside down after they become cursed by a child. Um, the trailer begins by showing an odd nature of Asher and Whitney's show as they flub voiceover narration and fix up improvised <laughs> houses. This isn't your typical house flipping show, though. My homes are reflecting by are reflecting the local community and we're husband and wife. So what could go wrong? Now, Stone says uh, obnoxiously in the trailer. Things quickly go wrong when producer Doogie, who's played by Safdie, uh, instructs Asher, who insists he is a good person, to give a $100 bill to a girl while the cameras are rolling. After they get the stage shot, Asher asks for the money back, but the girl refuses. After Asher snatches the money back, the girl puts a curse on him. And the tension and absurdity increases as Fielder is seen pouring Gatorade on his head. <laughs> Whitney meets the screaming war- woman in a teepee and a gunman arrive at once all at the same house. Now with their marriage and show crumbling as we speak, Asher wonders if everything is happening for a reason. Now this, The Curse, premieres at the New York Film Festival Thursday night and will stream on Paramount+. Plus with Showtime on November 10th. And then it will air on Showtime on November 12th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time Pacific. So that sounds very interesting. It did pop up in my trailers, you must watch, but I didn't I didn't check it out, but now I'm going to have to. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we've talked about this before. Anytime Emma Stone's involved, it, it, it's going to be funny, you know? So oh, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good. Uh, I'm excited about this next one, too, because I'm a huge fan. Paramount Plus has announced the streamer's next South Park exclusive event, South Park Joining the Panderverse. will debut on Friday, October 27th in the U.S. and Canada. Now, it'll premiere on October 28th in the U.K. and Australia and other international markets afterward. Now, the uh, streamer also released a teaser for it, and the official logline for Joining the Panderverse reads as follows. Cartman's deeply disturbing dreams portend the end of life as he knows it and loves. The adults in South Park are also wrestling with their own life decisions as the advent of AI is turning their world upside down. The teaser for the exclusive event promises the return of all your favorite South Park characters, 
but maybe not quite as you remember them. The clip does feature Cartman, Kenny, Butters, and Kenny as female characters at the end. Kyle sits in the office of PC Principal and asks him, how does this even make any sense? Comedy Central has renewed South Park, as you guys know, we told you, through 2027, which will lead the series into the 30th season, which is just mind-boggling to me. It's trying to catch up with The Simpsons and shit. Um, Look, I'm all in. I fucking love South Park. They're not scared to do controversial shit. They take on stuff. They just run with it, and it's been successful, and I fucking love it. Uh, Are they going to kill Kenny? That's the question, right? Like, how does Kenny die? Like, that's all I'm saying. Uh, uh, how, how does Kenny not die? That's, that's the right. real question. That's right. Because, I mean, he dies every two seconds. That's right. Um, <laughs> heading over to NBC Universal, The Exorcist Believer, a reboot, a reboot in the uh, legacy horror franchise, summoned the number one spot at the domestic box office, despite falling short of expectations. The rated R film from Universal and Blumhouse collected uh, $27.2 million from 3,663 North American venues over the weekend. Now, below estimates that suggested a debut closer to $35 million, though, so that's why we're saying mm-hmm. fell short. Um, these ticket sales fall somewhere uh, in between recent horror releases like Saw X, which came in at $18.3 million, and The Nun 2, which came in at $32.6 million. Believer also opened at International Box Office with $17.8 million for the global start of uh, $45.1 million overall. Now, since the sixth Exorcist movie cost only $30 million, it's well poised to in its theatrical run, but its reviews are only 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. And audience scores on CinemaScore only give it a C, which is terrible guys uh so the studio may need to reconsider its strategy before the next installment opens in 2025 universal spent a staggering 400 million dollars in 2021 to buy the rights to the terrifying property with plans to at least develop a trilogy over the next few years so it needs moviegoers to feel invested in the series but beyond this installment to justify that massive deal but i don't know how that's gonna happen man um that that's crazy but i will say i uh my plans for this halloween season is to watch the original exorcist because i've never seen it and i mean all you old heads say it's like the greatest horror movie of all time so i gotta watch it i i yeah i don't know if i would define it as the greatest horror movie of all time but it is fucking terrifying it it, it is it uh, i guarantee it'll keep you up you're, you're not going to want to fall asleep. That's all I'm yeah. saying because you're going to see visions of fucking Linda Blair's head spinning and you're going to fucking like – it's scary. I'm just saying. It is fucking scary. But you're right. Even though the film will be profitable, it seems like, to try to recoup that $400 million that they paid to get the rights, I just – yeah, that's going to be tough. That's going to be tough. Unless they open the next two because they're planning this thing as a trilogy like in a space where they're just not going to be competing with anything, right? And even then, I just don't know. This next one, if you follow me on social media, you saw my thoughts on this one. I am not a fan. I think this is a horrible idea. Don't do it, but they're going to do it anyway. I'm talking about the news of a new series set in the world of Suits. Apparently is very early in development. Now, the new show would hail from Aaron Korsh, who, of course, was the creator of Suits. Now, at this time, it would not be a spinoff, a prequel 
or a sequel to the original show. Exactly. But rather would feature entirely new characters in a new setting. Now I'm hearing it's Los Angeles. It's supposed to, supposedly going to be taking place in Los Angeles. Now nothing is finalized as of yet, but given the recent success of Suits on streaming... It is believed to be a high priority for NBC Universal. No network is attached to the project at the time. Now, Suits and its spin-off Pearson originally aired on USA Network, but given the fact that the network has largely moved away from scripted fare, it's doubtful any potential new show would end up there. So, UCP, which produced the original show, is in talks to produce the new show. David Bardis and Doug Lyman, who were uh, executive producers on the original, will also executive produce the new show. Now, Suits originally aired on USA Network from 2011 through 2019 for nine seasons. It starred, of course, Gabriel Mock, Patrick J. Adams, Rick Hoffman, Meghan Markle, Gina Torres, Sarah Rafferty, and more. The show was successful in its initial run, but has re-entered the cultural conversation as of late thanks to the first eight seasons becoming available on Netflix in addition to already being available on Peacock. It has, as we've been telling you for weeks, dominated the streaming ratings chart since then, with the show recently breaking a record with the most ever number one appearances on Nielsen's streaming top 10 chart. So, my thoughts on this very quick. They don't want new characters. They don't want a new setting. They want suits. That's why suits is number one on streaming. They want suits. If you're going to do this, just do a revival. Just bring it back. If you want a new setting, remember at the end, spoiler alert, and anybody who is watching it currently on Peacock or or Netflix, turn off the sound real quick. Remember at the end, Harvey left. Harvey and Donna moved out to Seattle to work for, for Mike at the new firm that he's at. So... Just set it in Seattle. Go out there. Let's find out what's happening with Mike and Rachel and Donna and Harvey. You know? Have little guest appearance visits from Lewis and the gang if you want to. But that's what fucking people want to see. They want to see what's going on. They don't want new shit. I just... And this is nothing against Aaron Korsh. He's a brilliant guy. And I'm sure the show would be good. It's just I don't think it's what people want. So just if you're trying to capitalize on the success, capitalize on the fucking success and bring it back. That, that's all I'm saying. I, I don't understand. Um, my thought is, we talked about this off of uh, recording, but for anybody who didn't know, Suits was originally set in the world of investment bankers, which is why, if you remember during the course of the this show, we, we had some storylines that dealt with investment bankers. But USA didn't like the idea. They didn't want to attack the bankers at that time. They thought it was a bad idea that people wouldn't do it. So Course changed it to the world of lawyers, corporate lawyers. So I'm just wondering if this new thing is he's going to get a chance to go back to what he originally wanted to do and set it in investment bankers out in LA, which would be, <laughs> nah, nah. yeah, it's, I mean... it's so interesting too, because literally everyone wants to come back to this series. Yes. Everybody from the original show. Fucking wants Patrick to come Adams back. got slapped on the wrist for saying he missed his friends like, and wanted to come back. Like, so just... crazy. Like, I just, I don't understand. I don't know how successful it's going to be. Um, are there going to be pop-ins here and there? That'll be interesting because I mean, 
Gina, because she's on 911 or 911 Lone Star, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if her character pops back in or even if Patrick or Gabriel. But I just, I don't know, man. I don't know why you're just not reviving it. If we're in the time of revivals, just fucking yeah. do it. Like, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Has there been a revival that's failed yet? I think every Not revival the- that's come has at least lasted two or three seasons. So, I mean, yeah, I just I literally. don't see people would kill for three seasons of suits to find out what was going on with them. I would like, yeah. you know, and exactly uh, just, the hardest just- part about it would have to be somehow negotiating how to get Rachel on it. Would they have to clear yeah. it with the fucking palace or whatever the fucking bullshit they would have to go through, you know, but. I mean, I say go for it. Just fucking negotiate. You know, the queen's gone. Fuck Chuck. Like, just... <laughs> well, I mean, their the whole relationship, I feel like they wouldn't even have to ask. So, that's I true. Mean, you know, that's true. Yeah, so, just saying. Uh, just bring back suits. Just just bring back exactly. suits, man. That's all we want. That's all we want. Well, Tony Schaub returns. Um, yes. And, you know, as the detective, detective in uh, Peacock's Mr. Monk last case a monk movie premiering on december 8th the monk reunion movie will see shab uh, uh reprise his role as adrian monk a consulting detective with obsessive compulsive disorder yes and wide range of phobias now per the official logline the film sees monk return to solve one last and very close personal case involving his beloved stepdaughter molly a journalist preparing for her wedding Original series stars uh, Ted Levine, Trailer Howard, Jason Gray Stanford, Melora Hardin, and Hector Alizano, Alizando, um, reprising their roles in the Mr. Monk's uh, Last Case of Monk movie with Caitlin McGee and James Purefoy uh, joining new as new cast members. So that's exciting. Uh, the original series ran for about eight seasons and accumulated eight Emmys over the course of its run. And Shalab uh, winning Best Actor comedy series three times. So, I mean, this is this just makes sense. And it's awesome, too, that everybody wanted to come back because it was very popular for its time. It was. And see, revival, even if it's just for a movie. Right? It, it's this is what people want. They want to see, hey, where are they at right now? Let's get Psych is doing that. Another extremely popular one is coming back and doing a little revival. So I just, little piece of knowledge to Trailer Howard, once considered, she was the original one being considered for the live action Harley Quinn back in the day. Mm, she starred on Two Guys and a Girl with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, way back in the day, two guys, a girl in a pizza parlor that was shortened to two guys and a girl. But uh, she was the one being under initial consideration for the live action Harley Quinn way the fuck back in the day. She would have been great. She's fantastic. I think she would have done stellar job back then. Of course, you know, yeah. it's too little, too late now. But just saying. Yeah. I, although I would have preferred her over Lady Gaga. I mean, if yeah. we're going with an older version of Harley Quinn, I'd have rather trailer than fucking Gaga, but that's just yeah, me. Yeah, let's be honest about that's it. That's just me. <laughs> Talk about DC fuck-ups. Um, <laughs> Peacock, I know you're excited about this one, is touting the success of The Continental from the world of John Wick. The Lionsgate-produced series premiered its 
first episode on September 22nd, only to become Peacock's biggest original launch of the year, meaning that the episode reached more accounts in its first weekend than any other original offering, according to NBC Universal. Following the release of the remaining two episodes, The Continental now ranks among the top five Peacock originals of all time in terms of reach, joining the ranks of Bel Air, The Best Man, The Final Chapters, Poker Face, and Based on a True Story. Yeah, that's very exciting. I have yet to watch it, but I've heard great things, and it looks really good. I think this is literally the only new show that I'm, uh, I mean, that I'm secure enough that it won't get canceled in the first season to watch. Right there, you go. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm super pumped for that one. But I mean, you mentioned based on a true story. Now this one is getting a season two at Peacock, because the eight episode first season of the dark comedy was so popular. And this thing debuted on the streaming service back in June. And it starred Kaylee Cuoco, Chris Messina, Tom Bateman, Priscilla Quintina, uh, Liana Libretto, Natalia Dyer, and more. The show is a satire of true crimes genre with elements loosely inspired by real events. The official description of season one states that it is about Ava and her husband Nathan. A down-to-their-luck couple who la- whose lives collide with an infamous serial killer terrorizing the streets of Los Angeles oh. and seize a unique opportunity to capitalize on America's obsession with true crime by making a podcast with the killer. <laughs> oh, God. Um, based on a true story, it received mostly good reviews from critics upon its release, with season one holding at a 74% critical approval rating on rotten tomatoes so that's very very exciting and i mean it sounds like an interesting concept so kudos to them without doubt without doubt um all right let's head on over to sony and talk about spider-man i'm kidding it's not actually about spider-man but it is about a couple of cool people sydney sweeney and glenn powell who are both just slaying right now they showed up at CinemaCon this week in las vegas to promote their upcoming romantic comedy anyone but you The project was announced in January of 2023, with production taking place in Australia. Now, paparazzi photos from the set sent the internet into a tizzy, with fans speculating about Sweeney and Powell's on-screen chemistry, implying that there might be a little off-screen chemistry as well. I don't know, maybe. Sweeney and Powell unveiled first footage from the project at CinemaCon, dishing out details on the much-anticipated film in a series of interviews and on stage. Now, if you haven't heard about this thing, the synopsis of Anyone But You reads as follows. A modernization of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, when a college arch nemesis reunite years after graduation for a destination wedding, they pretend to be a couple for their own personal reasons, but through pretending, they actually fall in love. Shakespeare's 16th century comedy centers on two romances that emerge when a group of soldiers arrive in town. Now, Sony has announced that the film will now premiere in theaters on December 22nd, instead of the original release date of December 15th. The new release date gives the feature the potential to play into the Christmas four-day weekend. Movie goings always spike after the holidays, so that's probably a smart move. And Christmas falls on a Monday this year, so roll it right over from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Now, Anyone But You now opens in the wake of Warner Brothers' Aquaman in the Lost Kingdom, which hits theaters on Wednesday, December 
20th. Not that I feel like that was going to be any threat anyway because we all know right. that I think that's just going to – I loved the first one. I'm just not – I don't think the second one's going to be any good. Apparently they've hacked the shit out of it. So uh, yeah. I just – yeah, yeah. Have you seen the rumors about – Elon freaking, Musk? Uh, not No, not Elon Musk, but Momoa showing up to set drunk and, like, uh, Amber just, like, being a complete bitch and, like, all this stuff. Like, yeah, and wild. Momoa wanted her fired, which is why he was trying to egg her on dressed up as Johnny Depp. And I guess because I saw that and then I saw further that the studio was going to axe her and Elon Musk was her boyfriend at the time. And he said, mm. I will burn the fucking studio down. I'll spend as much as I have to to end it if you fire her. So they backed off and didn't fire her. Like, wow. what the fuck, man? This movie is so fucking crazy. I just, you can't make that shit up. It's just like, I don't even know. No, it's going to be like the biggest flop in history. I, I think like. so. I, just, I think so. Because uh, they're not going to promote it. They're not going to promote I mean, their no. marketing plan for it is probably bare minimum. Yeah, Let's and they cut Keaton it. to put Affleck in, and then they cut Affleck, and then they, like, I, they, I mean, Wonder Woman was supposed to be in it, now she's not in it, like, I don't even, who's the fuck's in it? I mean, I just, yeah. it's gonna suck, it's gonna suck. Exactly. Uh, Lionsgate, they have landed the U.S. rights to The Home. Now, this Ooh. is a thriller starring Pete Davidson. The movie directed by James DeMonico um, from The Purge was backed by Miramax and screened for buyers outside of competition at this year's Toronto Film Festival. It's expected to land in theaters sometime in 2024. The home follows Davis or Davidson as Max, a former foster child who begins working at a retirement home, only to discover that its residents and caretakers harbor sinister secrets. Davidson returns to Saturday Night Live this weekend to host the show's first episode since the end of the DGA or uh, WGA strike. He recently starred in Sony's Dumb Money, a comedy about um, the Stranger Than Fiction GameStop stock frenzy from January 2021. That's interesting. I mean, you got to make it like a thriller comedy, I feel like, because him in a dramatic role. But who knows? Maybe he's the best actor we never even knew. I mean, um, Sandler, right? Like, I mean, Sandler yeah. blew us away going all dramatic. So compete. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. Know. But I mean, let's be honest about it. A retirement home is already scary as shit anyway. No shit. But, yeah. Like, so, I mean, this will be very interesting. So I'm kind of curious about this whole premise so that's exciting yeah no i mean hey let's see if he's got some range let's see what he's you know i just let's I see mean, we're gonna find out speaking of miramax you said miramax back that one well miramax has apparently prevailed in a bidding war for the television rights to the halloween horror franchise meaning michael myers could soon be slicing and dicing his way across the small screen or streamer platforms the indie studio beat out other contenders including a24 which was also in the for the rights. Now it makes sense because Miramax would move aggressively to nab the option to make the television offshoot as the company shares ownership of the film rights with uh, Trancas Plus, the horror franchise has been very lucrative for Miramax, which also co-produces the Scream movies. Now, financial details of the sale of the television rights were not immediately clear. Myers, of course, the knife-wielding serial killer who has anchored the series, first appeared in John Carpenter's 78 horror classic, Halloween. In addition to the movies, Meyer has popped up to bloody effect in comic books and novels as well. So, um... 
interesting. I mean, if you're going to do some offshoots, like a little one-two episode, you know, mini-series. I can't see following Michael around, like, in a fucking series. Like, I don't no. think that would work, but yeah. whatever. I mean, I mean if, if you did it that way, you would have to have him not be in every episode, yeah. right? You have to build up the anticipation. Um, but is it just me or just... I mean, it has really nothing to do with the company, but, like... Just every time we talk about Miramax, there's that that bad taste in my mouth of he who shall not be named. Yes. It's well, just I mean, that, yeah, it's never we're it's never going to. Yeah. You can't escape it. It is. It's no. the company that he built. So you can't. Yeah. He, I, and it's unfortunate for the people who now own it, who are trying to do right by it. But yeah, you're yeah. never going to escape that. It's just you're not sorry yeah super wild man <laughs> super wild um now this one i'm super excited because a24 is putting out the most storyteller of storyteller movies man i think they are the best independent studio out right now they put out good shit after good shit now the trailer for a24's upcoming sports biopic the iron claw which starring zach efron jeremy allen white has just been revealed now, this one is directed by Sean Durkin. Uh, the film follows Efron as wrestler Kevin Von Erich, or the Gordon Golden Warrior, yes. a member of the famed Von Erich wrestling dynasty. Now, White co-stars as Carrie Von Erich, Kevin's brother, who also uh, competed in a heavyweight division. Holt McCunney uh, stars as Fritz Von Erich, Kevin and Carrie's father who was a three-time world champion the film explores the family members lives and will depict the rise and fall of the influential wrestling family it also stars the one and only lily james mira um tyranny harris dickinson and stanley simmons prior to the release of the trailer the film had already been garnered attention from both Efron and White gained uh, noticeably huge muscles for their respective roles. While Efron was once associated with musicals and comedies, this marks his latest dramatic biopic following the role of uh, the extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, in which he did star as the serial killer Ted Bundy. Yes. White, on the other hand, is best known for his beloved characters on television, first as Philip Gallagher in 11 seasons of Showtime's classic Shameless, and most recently as the tortured yet endearing chef Carmi uh, Berzato on FX's smash hit The Bear. The Iron Claw is produced by A24, BBC Films, House Productions, and Access Entertainment. It will release in theaters on December 22nd. I am so excited for this thing. They all look amazing. I mean, we've been kind of seeing pictures from this film for the past two or three years, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Zac Efron is fucking jacked, dude. Like, it is crazy. But the storyline just looks so good. Just recently, about a year ago, I found out that Jeremy Allen White was one of the other brothers and i was like this is going to be a classic automatically like what's going on like so i'm just you know and with the 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 interest in heels our interest in heels and how that got me back into wrestling where like sometimes i'll go back on peacock and watch some stuff like i'm just all in for this right now man 
Oh, me too. And this is a real story. This is a true story. This is a real yeah. family. And it's a real fucked up family. Fucked I was, up. I, yeah, I've been around. I watched this happen in real life because I, you know, I played it out. I was all into wrestling during this time. And this is, this is a fucking twisted ass story that's oh, yeah. real. So this is brilliant. If you watch the trailer, it, you immediately think this could be an Oscar contender. There's no doubt about it. Maybe for yeah. best picture, definitely for the performance. It's brilliantly timed with the release because everybody remembers December. Nobody remembers January. So exactly. it's right around. It's right fresh in the mind of the Oscar voters. So um, I think this could have a lot of potential. I think you could see this one come out swinging and, and potentially do really well come award season if we can ever fucking get to award season with all the shit going on. That's the on. thing. But, That's um, the thing. Yeah, I'm, exci- I'm like you. I'm really excited about this one. I think the casting was just brilliant. And trust me, guys, if you're older like me and you know the story watch the trailer and you're gonna be like fuck it just brings back memories of like shit yeah i forgot how fucked up that was like it really is it's just crazy um speaking of really fucking great if you're tired of t-swift but love kelsey you gotta watch this one. Let's jump over to Amazon MGM. The Kelsey brothers have scored a touchdown for Prime Video. Kelsey, the documentary chronicling the Philadelphia Eagles team captain and all pro center Jason Kelsey's epic year leading to his Super Bowl matchup against his brother Travis, is now the streamer's most watched documentary ever in the U.S. It beat out Val for the top spot. Now, after premiering on September 12th, Kelsey had the biggest first three days ever for a documentary film in the U.S. It debuted at number one and has remained in the top five movies on Prime Video throughout the first three weeks of its release. Guys, this documentary is fantastic and it doesn't it, it doesn't hold back. It gets into the controversy between the two brothers and the Travis's struggles. He was He's not always been a great guy, y'all. He's gotten himself into trouble sometimes and his brother has saved his career and his ass more than once. Um, and so it doesn't hold back. It doesn't shy away from the bad side of the of it either um but it really does show that that brotherly bond and and going out of your way to to do anything to make sure that the other is okay um and kind of a thing it's a brilliant documentary i i highly re- there is no t-swift yeah but well it's uh, funny too because it's it i mean the documentary is about the older brother exactly uh, but, like exactly. with the popularity of everything going on with the younger brother and his relationship i'm sure it's drawing a lot of female audiences to this which is great because i mean it is a great documentary these two are honestly phenomenal players like he may go down as the best center of all time and travis i just learned this today um travis doesn't run strategical routes like they don't draw up plays for him he runs his own routes so basically where he has to know what everybody else is doing so he doesn't interfere with their routes like he makes up his own shit yeah it's wild um but yeah it's a great freaking documentary and you know what's so funny is that you don't think about it, but Travis is old as fuck. You would think he's yeah. in his prime. You would think he's like yeah, at mm-hmm. his early peak with where he's hitting his stuff. But he's as old as Gronk, who's fucking yeah. retired. Like it's so exactly. weird because you just don't envision it. When you see him on the field, you think he's like mid twenties and hitting his stride, right? Like no, no, fucking, he's yeah. like up. There. He was playing for like three years before Mahomes even came to the Chiefs. exactly. So like he was playing with Alex Smith. Like it's wild. Man. It is. But yeah. 
great documentary. Everybody be sure to check that one out. Hell yeah. Um, Prime Video released the trailer for Candy Cane Lane <sighs> Thursday morning, uh, providing a first look at Eddie Murphy's... Uh, <laughs> what what was my old word i used to say majestical yes uh, magical <laughs> holiday adventure um the full footage reveals murphy playing father a father and a holiday spirit who accepts a magical wish offered by a pushy elf who's played by jillian bell to help his family win the neighborhood decoration contest his competitive edge may have some unintended consequences now, Tracy Ellis Ross also stars as Murphy's wife, and Thaddeus J. Mixon, Kent Marino, Nick Offerman, Robin Thede, um, Chris Reed, Janaya Walton, Madison Thomas, Angelia Johnson Reyes, uh, Lombardo Boyer, DC Youngfly, Danielle Pinnock, Timothy Simmons, Ricky Lindholm, and um, Stefan. Uh, Tumbleski, yeah. also uh, <laughs> along among the cast. Candy Cane Lane debuts on Prime Video on December first. Have you uh, um, caught this trailer? I have not, but I mean, I I don't know, man. This latest round of Eddie Murphy trying to come back into the public eye, it hasn't been my favorite. Um, yeah, he should have left it with Coming to America too. Uh, and just like well, even that, I, even I heard that was mid. Like I, yeah, it was nowhere near the first one. It was it yeah. was enjoyable, but it was it never reached the pinnacle of the original. It just yeah. didn't. So um, this one, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I watched the trailer and I was like, this is gonna fucking suck. And it's yeah. got a great cast. I mean, Eddie Murphy and 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 Tracy Ellis Ross. That's fucking. You would that's think. Huge. You would think yeah. awesome. It is not. The trailer just makes me not want to watch. <laughs> yeah. It's just bad. Well, and that's another thing, too. Like, you you know, and everybody else knows that I'm really big into stand-up comedy and comedy podcasts. They talk about all the time they would love for Eddie Murphy to come back on stage. I, I don't want to see it because I'm afraid that he would ruin the reputation of Delirious and Raw. And, I mean, those are just such classics and on the pinnacle of great comedy specials and i just i don't want him to ruin his comedy stand-up comedy legacy yeah yeah i mean i don't know man it's tough i i just i feel like if he wants to continue to do what he's doing because he's got like five thousand four hundred and twelve kids so it's uh, true i mean true do the animation route again go do the voices but you know like like because he had a uh he slayed in that when he was doing shrek and mulan and like you know we don't necessarily have to see you eddie we just exactly. I will say this though, you know what's gonna send him back over the top and get him back to where everybody loves him and everybody's excited? The Beverly Hills Cop sequel. It, I mean, it's yeah. coming and every because that's been long enough, right? Yeah. That's like we everybody's been wanting that for a very long time and the the desire is there. I feel like you're right. Like some of this stuff we just we don't care, right? Yeah. But People do care about Beverly Hills Cop, and I think they're going to yeah. be really excited to see that. So if it's well done, and it you know it can recapture that, I think then maybe he'll be all right. But I don't know. Yeah, 
All right, let's jump over to Netflix. I'm super excited about this one. The Crown, guys, we finally know, will bow its final season in two parts. Netflix revealed a release plan in the first trailer featuring Imelda Staunton's Queen Elizabeth II wandering past images of Claire Foy and Olivia Colman as a nod to the series' decade-spanning journey. Now, the first four episodes of season six will debut on the streamer on November 16th. The Crown will then take a hiatus of nearly one month before releasing its final six episodes on December 14th. Though Netflix is largely stuck to its binge model of releasing all the episodes of a television season at once, it has barufricated debuts before... In 2022, Stranger Things Season 4 released seven episodes in May, withholding the final two episodes until July. Now, Peter Morgan's historical drama series will recount the late 90s and early 2000s, and that does mean, yes, a period defined by Princess Diana's tragic death. Now, regarding Diana's death, a source said that the production team wanted to get it right and handle it sensitively uh, for Season 6. The series, too, will see the blossoming start of Prince William and Kate Middleton's romance while they're both studying at the University of St. Andrews. So um, this is going to be interesting because the Queen ate a lot of shit when Diana died and the, the people turned on her for a little bit and made her eat some humble, you know, she had to get out there and basically apologize and say, Hey, I was wrong and I treated her really badly. And I'm sorry for that. And while she never said that her actions, when she declared her the people's princess and she could keep her title as princess and she could, you know, there was a lot of, it is going to be really interesting to see how they do it. It, uh, I'm just saying, it's going to be really interesting. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, Star Trek Prodigy Season 2 is warping its way to Netflix. Oh. The animated kids series is set in the Star Trek universe, originally aired for Paramount Plus and Nickelodeon. Um, it did happen in 2021, so you could still go back and watch that, but it is coming to Netflix. It was renewed for a second season, but Paramount announced that they were scrapping the second season and removing the first season from Paramount Plus in 2023. So reverse what I just said. Um, <laughs> in the first season of uh, Prodigy, it will de- it will debut on Netflix uh, this year, later this year. Uh, the second season slated to premiere on the streaming giant in 2024 with this move prodigy will be the new our first new star trek series to air domestically outside the paramount ecosystem since the revamped star trek tv universe launched with star trek discovery back in 2017 so i know it has a huge cult following for this one so it only makes sense uh yeah netflix was smart to pick it up but it is going to be really weird to see a star trek show not on paramount like that's going to be really like i don't know i don't know why and i wonder why they decided to scrap it because it was a hit i mean it does have a huge fan following and was doing well so i don't understand the thought process behind that um I don't know. Uh, Netflix has also dropped the trailer for its animated musical comedy, Leo, starring Adam Sandler. Yes, Adam Sandler is doing a musical, guys. But he's not doing it as Adam Sandler. He's doing it as a 74-year-old lizard. And I'm not even making that up. Per the official logline, Sandler voices Leo, a class pet who discovers that he only has one year left to live. Now, faced with the prospect of imminent death, Leo decides to head out and explore the outside world. 
However, he finds his plans derailed by the students of his classroom and a mean substitute teacher. Sandler also serves as a producer and songwriter of Leo, which is directed by Robert Smigel, Robert Marinetti, and David Watchamine. Now, Smigel co-wrote the script along with Sandler and Paul Sadow. The trailer sees Leo realize that he's getting older with every new batch of fifth graders. When a substitute teacher arrives, she orders that the children must take turns bringing the class pets home. Leo takes it as his chance to escape, but soon forms a close relationship with the students once they discover that he can actually talk. Now, in the process of helping them face personal challenges, Leo finds his own purpose in life. Leo premieres November 21st on Netflix. This sounds completely like an Adam Sandler film, but I'm all in kind of. I kind of think it's going to be hilarious. So, Oh, for sure, man. For sure. Well, Netflix and Shondaland, they have acquired world rights to Black Barbie. Now, it's a documentary that dives into the history of the first Black Barbie doll, hmm. which debuted back in 1980, 31 years after the original Barbie, and three black women at Mattel who advocated for this toy. Now, directed by Lagura Davis, Black Barbie debut at this year's um, South by Southwest. So that's very exciting. And the cut of the film was met with widespread acclaim. Now, Shonda Rhimes and Betsy Beers have signed on the team of executive producers as part of Shondaland's overall deal with Netflix. Davis's uh, personal tie to the material is the entry point to the documentary which chronicles the Black Barbie's journey and our cultural impact. According to the logline, the film examines the importance of representation and how dolls can be crucial to the formation of identity and imagination. Through the stories of uh, Mattel, insiders, consumers, cultural commentators, and historians. I think this is going to be really good, especially for educating the younger viewers. Absolutely. I mean, you know, anytime that we can say, hey, look, all we had was white dolls and Barbie's the most popular doll, let's kind of change that. I th- yeah, I think that's going to be brilliant. Uh, okay, let's shift over to Apple and end it up with Apple. And this is exciting. Apple TV Plus released finally a fresh look at Monarch Legacy of Monsters, the newest installment, of course, in Legendary's Monsterverse, during a panel presentation at New York Comic Con. Now, this one's starring Kurt Russell, Wyatt Russell, Anna Sawa, Kiersey Clemens, Ren Watabi, Mari Yamanto, Anders Holm, Joe Tippett, and Eliza Lewowski. The series is set to premiere globally November 17th, with the release of the first two episodes. Now, Monarch, set in the dual timelines of the 1950s and 2010s, picks up primarily after the battle between Godzilla and the Titans that leveled San Francisco. It was um, a monstrous battle that revealed to humanity a shocking truth. Monsters are real. The series primarily follows two siblings as they trace their father's footsteps, uncovering their connection to the secretive organization known as Monarch. Now, as they discover more clues, they're led into an unimaginable world of monsters and down a rabbit hole that connects them to Army Officer Lee Shaw, played by Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell. Obviously, Kurt's going to be playing him in the 50s, and Wyatt's going to be playing him in the 2010s, I would assume. I mean, other way around there. Wyatt in the 50s, 
Kurt in the 2010s. Uh, the organization is threatened by what Shaw knows, forcing three generations to reckon with buried secrets on how earth-shattering events reverberate through lives. The show, co-developed and executive produced by Chris Black and Matt Fraction, expands Legendary's Monsterverse, a series of interconnected stories bringing together some of pop culture's most famous titans. Now, if you guys know, this is all set up by a bunch of movies. Previous entries include, of course, 2014's Godzilla, 2017's Kong Skull Island, 2019's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and 2021's Godzilla vs. Kong. Next up, you guys know, because we've been talking about this, the next one in those movies is Godzilla times Kong, The New Empire. So, hmm. That's, mm. I mean, I've been a fan of all the movies. I actually liked all the movies. I thought they were all pretty good. So the idea to go back and see, like, the monarch history and how it plays into the movies, I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I think that's an interesting concept because there's so many lore with, you know, Godzilla, King Kong, those type of, you know, creatures. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, Apple, man, they love spending that money. That's definitely <laughs> going to be interesting. <laughs> they do have um, the money. They do. They do. Well, now we're heading over to our top five segment. And this week it is top five directors with the most range. Mm. I have to say it was um, a lot of work, a lot of research. Um, some of these people, I didn't even really know their names. But then when I look at their catalog, I'm like, oh, shit, I, I see. I've seen a lot of their stuff. But they, I, you know, it was just never one of those things where I was like, who's the director of this film? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have to start with my number five who is Mark Forster. Now, you like I said, you may not know his name, but he has put out projects like World War Z, Monsters Ball, Finding Neverland, The Kite Runner, and also, most notably, A Man Called Otto, um, which was fantastic. But if you look at that discography and think about all the different genres, all the different types of films they are, that is crazy because how do you do like a zombie war film and then do like monsters ball or yeah. do like a, a man called auto? Like if you know any of those films, you'll know the range that this man has and is able to bring to life because you see a lot of people, you know, stick in their in their realm, in their niche. And there's nothing wrong with that. But those people who can bounce outside of that and still be very productive and very successful are, you know, those are the ones who create a legacy for their name in Hollywood. Um, so yeah, number five for me, Mark Forster. Yeah. Good choice. Good choice. And yeah, that is a wide range. No doubt about it. My number five, you've probably definitely heard the name cause it's being talked about everywhere with Deadpool three coming up and of course, free guy. And, and it's just so many other things. But did you know that Sean Levy actually has a wide range of films as well? Sean Levy, if you didn't know, also directed Real Steel with Hugh Jackman, right? So that's kind of like a, a father-son bonding movie with Evangeline Lilly and they're like doing where boxing has been taken over by robots, giant-sized robots, and they control the robots. It's a really nice, dramatic um, film. It's a, it's a family drama that, that's about redemption and it's a great film. He also did a comedy with Steve Martin, Cheaper by the Dozen, which is the widest thing away from the family drama of Real Steel. And then he also did The Adam Project, 
like a sci-fi time traveling type film. So he's all over the map with these things. You know, he's doing family dramas, he's doing comedies, he's doing sci-fi movies. He's like, um, and then of course now he's the superhero movies because he's doing Deadpool three. He's taking two of his favorite people, Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman, and he's putting them finally together. Um, perfect choice for that movie, by the way, because this guy has worked with both and knows them both really well. So it's going to be awesome. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually remember. I knew he did Real Steel. I had no idea he did Cheaper by the Dozen. No idea. I thought that was really. I went back and I'm like, holy shit, because that's that's a great movie. Um. So again, though, just like we were talking about, that wide range of can you do more than just one type of film? And he has clearly proven that he can. So um, Sean Levy, my number five. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know he's the big producer behind Stranger Things. He certainly Um, is. Yeah, so he is definitely everywhere, man. He really is. Um, Number four for me goes to another possibly unknown person for the layman's people, um, uh, Donald uh, Petrie. Now, this guy is probably most notable for directing How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days or Miss Congeniality or Mystic Pizza. But he has also directed most recently an amazing TV limited series, I guess you could say, um, The Kaminsky Method. Like, this thing is freaking phenomenal. And, I mean, he has shifted more into the television side, so I guess that's how you can use the wide range. Um, but, I mean, how do you go from rom-coms to, like, hardcore court dramas, no matter if they are film or television? Yeah. Because he also does things for Chicago Med and Chicago PD right now. Um, but, yeah, man, I just, you know, going from the hardcore drama to the rom-coms, or from the rom-coms to the hardcore dramas, I feel like it's such a skill that not a lot of people have. So I wanted to put him on there. Uh, Donald Petrie. There you go. Good choice. Good choice. Now, my number four is a well-known name. He doesn't have a huge filmography because he's still kind of young, still kind of new to the game. But you know him and you know all of his films. And the films that he's done is like the widest gap of differences in films that I've ever seen in my life. It's just crazy. I'm talking about Damien Chazelle. And I'm just going to name three films that this man has directed. And they are three as different movies as you can possibly get. La La Land, Whiplash, and Babylon. They are three of the starkest different films from the same guy that I've ever seen. Like, if you go from La La Land, which is basically this beautiful rom-com love story about L.A., to Whiplash, which is this hardcore J.K. Simmons beating the shit out of Miles Teller. Like, and then Babylon, which is basically a big, huge fucking Hollywood orgy drug fest. I'm like, how is this all coming from this same guy? This is fucking crazy. He's got incredible range to be able to tell those three stories and tell them all as well as he told them. They've all been Oscar contenders, like and and in some instances Oscar winners. So I I just think it's incredible when you watch those three films, and you, I mean you would never even fathom that they're coming from the mind of the same guy. You just you just wouldn't. But it, it's incredible. Damien Chazelle, my number four. Yeah, man. I mean, super freaking good. Um, I don't know why, but my AirPods disconnected. Hold on. <laughs> All right, we're back. We're back. Um, yeah, for number three, for me, goes to 
Um, probably a more notable name, I would say, uh, Peter Farley or Fairley. Farley. Um, yeah. He has done things like The Green Book, Dumb and Dumber. There's something about Mary, Movie Forty Three, and like executive produce a quite a few different things like uh, Louder Milk or Lucky Hank. Um, it's just all of these random things, man. Like so, that's what really made me want to put him on the list because i was looking up like you know i started off how i made this list was starting off with a very big movie that i enjoyed and loved and then i looked at their credits right and i started off with green book and then i looked into it and i was like dumb and dumber movie 43 what what is happening right now yeah so yeah man i just i had to put him on there so yeah number three peter farley well i mean and just the drastic difference from the green book to dumb and dumber i mean the green book's a hardcore drama about racism and and i mean the green book for anybody who doesn't know is literally a book that told you where it was safe to go or not go when you're traveling across the country as a black person I mean, exactly. and then you think about Dumb and Dumber. I'm like, how is this even the fucking same guy? Yeah, it's fucking incredible. It's incredible. Um, my number three well-known name, um, and clearly his filmography screams range. Diverse films of all genres, of all stories, of all types. I'm talking about the one and only little Ronnie, Ron Howard. Now, do you guys know that he started off, if I'm not mistaken, his directorial debut was Splash with Tom Hanks Mm. and Daryl Hannah. A comedy about a mermaid. Everybody thought, are you fucking kidding? This is never going to work. It worked. He directed it brilliantly. Came right out of the gate flying. Uh Uh-oh. Ron Howard can direct. Look out. Right? So, Splash. It's just like, like I said, this just like over-the-top ridiculous comedy about a mermaid. And then everything in between you throw in apollo 13 real life gritty drama about the the space program and are they going to make it home and and uh houston we have a problem right you're not thinking about a squealing mermaid falling in love with a goofy guy right you're like it's just not even the same boat and then this guy says you know what i can do sci-fi too i can go into the world of a galaxy far far away i'm gonna do solo so it's just that's three out of the numerous films that this man has directed that are all over the map. He does drama, he does comedy, he does horror, he does documentary, he does like I mean literally everything. Um, and he's a brilliant fucking director. I mean honestly, I'm oh, Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Fuck, just there's so many different things that this man has done that show his range. This guy knows how to get it done. Fucking Ron Howard. I mean, you want a you want a director to finish your shit or to do your shit? Ron Howard's probably a pretty good fucking choice. That's all I'm saying. Oh yeah, come on now. I mean, he's like one of the best. Yeah, I just feel like doubt. he's probably one of the best people to actually work with too. I, I just feel like he's such a nice person. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The <laughs> uh, number two for me goes to Steven Soderbergh. Mm. Um, of course, best known for um, obviously Sex Lies and Videotape. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, you know, a couple of other notable ones. But, but, guys, if you didn't know, this man also directed, I believe, two of the Magic Mike movies, (laughs) which is so strange. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know. I do not know. Aaron Brockovich to Magic Mike. 
Yeah, like man, there you I, go. I was just like, what? I thought I was like misreading it, or like I was very confused. But yeah, I just you know he's definitely. I don't know. I feel like he's a very notable director, but he's a very far out there director, mm. right? So he uh, he is able to take on a whole bunch of different things and still be decently successful. So yeah. that's why I had to throw him on my list, man. I mean, come on, come on. But yeah, Steven Soderbergh. He's also one of the first, like, quote unquote, professional filmmakers to shoot a whole movie with an iPhone. Sure um, is. So he is, he loves to be experimentive with Claire um, Foy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, and that movie was tripping. That that was an intense movie about a woman like basically going nuts, or they were trying to make her think she was going nuts. That that yeah, yeah. that was a freaking crazy ass movie. I remember watching that one, going, "Holy shit!" Um, yeah, good movie. Um, my top two, you know, I talk about them all the time. They're probably my two biggest influences as a director. Um, these are guys that I look up to for their directing style and the way that they do things and the things that they've accomplished. So it should be no surprise that they're on my list. Um, number two, John Favreau. Uh, talk about range, guys. I mean, you're talking about a guy who did Cowboys and Aliens. It's a fucking Western with alien invasion it's like out there kind of a thing okay uh, i mean just daniel craig james bond is the star of it right it's it's like it's just an out there kind of trippy hardcore western film but also an alien invasion film it's just out there he did elf elf y'all like come on not even close to space western right kind of a thing and then of course iron man uh, you got to throw in Jumanji. You got to throw in like yeah, just all these. They're so different. When you talk about Iron Man and Cowboys and Aliens, or not Jumanji. Did he do Jumanji? He did Zumanda, the other like set in the yeah, Jumanji yeah. universe. Uh, you could have thrown out like Lion King. Yeah, and, like, yeah. You know, Jungle Book. Yeah. Chef. Oh my yeah, gosh, Jungle such Book. a good movie. Chef uh, was fantastic. But I mean, just yeah. I, but I picked those three specifically because they're just so drastically different. Iron Man, Elf, and Cowboys and Aliens are yeah. three drastically different films that you would not think would could possibly be directed by the same guy, and yet they are. And then, of course, now you throw in Mandalorian and like all these different things that he's working on. Um, he's just a really brilliant storyteller. And I watched this great documentary about the behind the scenes of the making of Elf. And he's he's very specific. He comes in when somebody hires him and he says, I want this, 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 and this. This is my vision. These are my demands. You have demands of me. Here are my demands. It must have this. It must have this. It must have this. Or I don't do it. And I love a guy that's got that approach. He's like, here's how I envision it. And these are the things I need to make that vision happen. That either works with what you want or it doesn't. So there you go. And I fucking love that. It's just, it's one of those things. And I mean, guys, think about it. We talk about it all the time, but no John Favreau, no MCU. Plain, plain and simple. Favreau doesn't get his way with Robert Downey Jr. Favreau doesn't have the success with Iron Man. There is no MCU. Period. That's how good the man is. Okay. Remember, he went to bat. Tom Cruise. They wanted Tom Cruise. Favreau said, fucking Robert Downey Jr. 
<laughs> the rest is history. He's a brilliant director, man. I love him. And he can cook. And he can fucking cook. I love this guy, man. He's like, I love him. I love him. My number two, John Favreau. Exactly, exactly. Uh, number one for me goes to one of the best of all time. Uh, definitely in the top five all-time directors in history. And I feel like just what he's able to do with different period pieces, um, different sci-fi stuff um i just you know he's so talented and what he just recently did with west side story a musical um of course i'm talking about steven spielberg this man that is guy? a legend mm -hmm. that, yeah that hmm, i wonder who he is yeah um <laughs> just honestly you know don't cancel me but he's my favorite jewish guy i just love everything about him i just feel like he is one of those people who is just able to see all different sides of things and bring a, be able to tell stories about so many different things. Not only did he do like Jaws, but he's also producing with uh, Bradley Cooper's um, Maestro. So that's very exciting. I'm very excited about that. Um, but of course, he was an executive producer on like um, Transformers Rise of the Beast. And I mean, I just feel like this guy is able to he's a chameleon. He's able to bounce around everywhere and see the story and everything. So, of course, I had to put him at number one, the one and only Steven Spielberg. And, man, I'm just saying this is a callback from, like, early, early, early episodes of this show. If you just want McAllister's, yeah. let me know. That's I got so you, fucking bro. Dude, I got you. we are so linked because I was literally just going to ask you if you still wanted to invite him to lunch at McAllister's. I always, swear to God, I always. was waiting for you to finish so I could ask you. That's so fucking funny. We are so there. It's fucking unreal. <laughs> but yeah, when you think about it, do you remember this guy also did Schindler's List? You're yeah. fucking go from Jaws to Schindler's List. That is fucking just range okay, yeah well range. literally back-to-back -back films were jurassic park to schindler's list yeah, yeah like that's just... crazy that's completely different enough to where like these two films were overlapping so much that he had the one and only george lucas come in and finish editing jurassic park so that he could go and do schindler's yeah, list yeah just unreal unreal man great choice for number one great choice my number one is another one that's my all-time favorite guys. This guy can knock it out of the park with everything he's ever fucking done. And he is the man, the man that finally got Wolverine right. Finally fucking got Wolverine right. I'm talking about the man, James Mangold, who of course directed Logan, who, oh my gosh, Logan was so fucking brilliant. They finally got him right. They finally let him be Wolverine that we all know and love. Um, but did you also know he's the guy behind Walk the Line? The with Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon about the, the biopic musical about Johnny Cash. Um, what? Yeah, same guy. He's also the guy that directed Ford vs. Ferrari. Um, with the, the true life story about, about the, the, the making of the Mustang. Um, I mean, it's just, when you think about that, he's got a biopic musical, he's got a superhero film, and then he's got a real life drama about Lee Iacocca and, and the creation of the Mustang. Uh, same guy. It's the, the range is incredible. Um, 
And he's so good. It's so... I feel like he just brings a sense of realism. I think that's why Logan finally worked. Because you allowed it to be the the Wolverine everybody wanted. The Wolverine that we love from the comic books. Basically this berserker killer that if you look at him wrong, he's going to fucking hack you apart. But there was a sense of realism to it. And and that is where the, the story of redemption through it all kind of a thing. I just think he's a brilliant... I, I think Walk the Line worked that way. Johnny Cash was a story of redemption. Trying to, you know, it's just, he's a brilliant storyteller. And I just think to be able to carry that vision from film to film in different genres and not lose who you are as a storyteller is just fucking brilliant. That's why I put him at the top of my list. Because he does tell all these different genres and he and he tells all these different stories but he never loses his vision as a storyteller of what he's trying to do um which just is brilliant what's up peanut i see you in the video for all you people watching youtube what's up buddy yes this is why you have to watch youtube to get the get the dog press i know I mean, it gramps misses you buddy gramps misses you waiting he's just waiting <laughs> but yeah man i mean we want to know what director do you feel like has the most range what movies do you watch where you're like oh wow that that was directed by the same guy i mean it happens so so more often than you think it does oh without doubt um it's kind of crazy to it be is. honest um all right well now we're heading over to the box office recap and of course like we told you in the industry news the exorcist the believer Came in at number one with $26.5 million. Number two was Paw Patrol, a mighty movie with $11.3 million. Number three was Saw X, whatever the fuck Roman numeral that is. Ten. Um, $7.8 million. Number four was The Creator with $6.2 million. And number five was The Blind. And it's still there. But it only brought in about uh, $3.2 million. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you know. Um, But, you know, there's new movies coming out this week. Um, Is there? there? I mean, there's a concert movie called Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour. That's right. Or you can just watch any Chief Games ever. I mean, you're pretty much going to get the same thing. I mean, clearly, no one is even trying to compete with some documentary um, called The Mission. Is this the only other thing being released on 1013? Seriously? Uh, Notes from our producer, Jason. Um, We love it. We love the notes. But yeah, man, it's (laughs) it's very interesting. Uh, Movies you can still go see right now. Um, The Haunting in Venice. The Nun Part 2. Dumb Money. The Equalizer 3. Uh, Hocus Pocus is back in theaters, you know, with it being Halloween time. So that's fun. And in some theaters, you still have Barbie. You still have Oppenheimer. So that's really exciting. Um, But yeah, man, all the fun stuff. All the fun stuff. Now, heading over to IMDP Pro's top trending segment. Uh, the top trending movie was The Reptile. Uh, and the top trending show was Gen V. And the top trending star, Alicia Silverstone. But why? Oh, she's in Reptile. That's why. That's why. Yeah, at least nobody died. At least nobody's yeah. got like court cases. Um, so that's exciting. It we, is. We'd love to see that. Yeah. So thank, thank goodness. A number one um, for that's actually number one for a reason. Yeah. So yeah, she's man. On we're, the show. We're, yeah. We're thankful. 
we're thankful. That's right. Um, but anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to It Gap Podcast for another great episode. Uh, 237. Absolutely wild. Yes. Man. Um, but of course, guys, follow our company at Crazy Ant Media and at It Cap Podcast for the podcast. And also, everything's OKP for the mental health podcast. Um, new episodes come out by Wednesday or bi weekly Wednesdays. Um, so, this next one is coming out next Wednesday. So, be sure to check that one out. It's about Sober October and our personal journey. And you guys know you can follow us personally on social media myself at JLo Fantastic and Crazy. Wait. Yeah, oh, wait. No, myself yep, at no. J, J Logan Austin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just been 237 episodes, it's, and I forgot I switched up my handle. It's okay because I was literally just about to say Crazy Ant Guy 1970, and that's not correct either. It's Crazy Ant mm-hmm. CEO. We See? we just had a time lapse right there. It was just like we we stepped back momentarily in time, and then we came back. Did you see it? Exactly. We were, it was quick. It, you missed it. It was we were time wild. traveling. Super speed. Yeah. That's what it was. That's what it was. Um, be we'll sure be the new Flash. Fine. Fuck. Come yeah, it's, it's fine. It's okay. Uh, you can listen to this podcast and subscribe anywhere you listen to your podcast. We're at Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, Our Hair Radio, Podbean, Stitcher, and so much more. And, of course, be sure to visit our website, www.crazyantmedia.com, where you can start rocking the latest and greatest Crazy Ant Media gear. We got the shirts. We got the hat. Shirts like that. Shirts like this. We have anything and everything you need, especially with the Halloween season. Uh, be sure to check out our new merchandise designs. We have four new ones up there right now. It's all the fun stuff, man. It's all the fun stuff. Um, yes. But yeah, I think the biggest thing for me in this show, I, I mean, honestly, the, the clarification, not clarification of who's going to be in the DCU and who's not going to be in the DCU. Because that's the most confusing thing ever, okay? Like, it's it's really it's really opened my eyes to, like, why even try to be a DC fan? That's where I'm at. Why no. even try to be a DC fan? I, 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 like, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And like I said, what I said during the, during the industry news part of it, I think you have a solid building ground. I, if you take Pattinson's Batman, which was extremely popular, people loved it, right? Um, start there. Start with that. Incorporate James Gunn's Superman in there because I think that is going to do well. I think he's got such a passion for the character. I don't think he's going to get that wrong. Um, and just go from there. Just go from there. That's all you really need. And, uh, you know, if I was Gunn, I would not bring, as much as I love John Cena and Peacemaker and that was a great series and all, just don't bring any of that. Just start with Superman, start with Batman, and just build out from there. Go with what works. And I'm with you. I don't like the uncertainty. I don't like... Some people are staying and some people are not. And uh, if the people are staying, are they different versions just being played by the same actors because they're not canon or are they canon or like what? It's so fucking confusing. Uh, just And now that I think about it, I don't like the Elseworld thing anymore either. Like don't set Pattinson's Batman separate. Why can't he just be your Batman? Like, you know, you can still do the Brave and the Bold storyline. You can still bring Damien in. It's fine. You know, I, I just, I don't know, man. If something is working, that's what you should stay with. I, I, I just don't see why to, I don't know. 
I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rant about it because I am such a big geek, and I just don't feel like you need two different versions of Batman or two different versions of Superman or two different versions of Joker or like whatever the fuck. Just have it continuity, man. Just it's it's okay. It's okay just to have one. It's I don't know. That's it, man. That's it. But I mean, you know, it is consistent. How much we love the one, the only. Oh, bro! Oh, bro.